Thank you, Jonathan. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. So our, our title this morning is Living, Living with God in the Center of Life. And uh, in our passage, uh, Jesus is going to communicate four critical necessities for a Christian's life. Uh, four ways that we need to be living with God in the center of life. And here are the four. Uh, we need to live with a complete commitment to God instead of to ourselves. Uh, we need to live with a high view of Scripture and God's power rather than a high view of ourself. We need to live in light of true love for God and true love for others instead of loving ourselves. And I love the way that Jesus is going to end this section because he ends it by emphasizing the total dependence that you and I need to have on Jesus himself. So what's going to be happening in our passage is the religious leaders of Jesus' day are, man, things are, are really ramping up. This is the last week of Jesus' life on earth before he dies on the cross. It is Wednesday. He's going to die on Friday. And so what happens is he's gone in, he's cleansed the temple, and the Pharisees are just feeling like, man, this, this guy that we hate, this guy that we want to destroy, man, everybody's following him, he's doing whatever he wants, there's nothing we can do to stop him. The disciples are there, and they're seeing all these things go on, and they feel like, man, this is our day, Jesus is coming in, he is going to take over, and we are going to sit on thrones with Jesus. We are going to help rule. They feel like this is the day that they, all their political hopes and dreams come true. And what's going to happen is on Friday, two days later, all of that is going to be turned around. And in this week of Jesus' life, he's intensifying his communication with the religious leaders. And he is letting these religious leaders know you are going to be set aside. The nation of Israel is going to be set aside because I'm the Messiah. I came and you rejected me. Now the Bible tells us that God does have a future hope for the nation of Israel. They are not finally set aside. But the whole reason that God is working right now in the church and through the church instead of through the nation of Israel is because they rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus is coming, and in this last week, the, the conflict with the Pharisees is intensifying. And so we're going to see four questions that are asked in our passage. Three are asked by the Pharisees, and Jesus closes it by asking them a question. And here's one of the things I love about how Jesus does this, is they're showing up, they're trying to distract him, they're trying to ask him questions that are going to trip him up, that are going to make him seem foolish, that are going to help them have the power that they want. And here's the thing that I love about what Jesus does. Um, first of all, in this passage, we see the total power and domination that Jesus has in life. He is so powerful. It does not matter who is against him. It does not matter how they try to trip him up. He is never tripped. But in this, as they raise like these kind of outside issues, and as they're trying to trick him, Jesus actually addresses the things that they bring up 
but there is a nugget in each one of these sections where Jesus addresses their question, but then in a sense he changes the subject and he just drops this spiritual, powerful spiritual truth, a foundational thing in the Christian life or in having a relationship with God. And he actually does not allow them to distract him. He brings it back to what is significant. You can actually take these passages, each of these sections, and there's a lot going on, but you can pick out a verse or two verses in, these enti- in each of these entire sections, and you can say, okay, that's the point that Jesus made. Powerful points. So we're going to look at those four things. And uh, I love this. Um, one of the things that I love is that Jesus closes this section by t- pointing to himself. Uh, somebody that they didn't want to think about. They didn't want to consider who he was. Now, um, these are foundational principles in living the Christian life. Next week, uh, we're going to start Matthew chapter 23, which is Jesus just condemning the Pharisees. So next week, we start talking about um, what religion is like when we are on the center of the throne of our life instead of Jesus being on the throne of life. This week is about Jesus being on the throne. Next week's about what happens when he's not. So let's jump into this. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Matthew twenty-two fifteen, and uh, let's, uh, let's read this first section. And what we're going to see here is um, that this is the main point. The main point of this section is that you need to give yourself to God. I was thinking about letting you discover it, but we're going to have each of the points be what Jesus' point was. And so um, it's interesting. This, this first section is only contained in Matthew, and it's about taxes. And isn't it interesting? Who was Matthew? He was a tax collector, so he's not leaving this story out. And this is a political question. So let's, let's read it. Matthew twenty two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle him with his words. And that theme we're going to see throughout this entire section, it's the Pharisees trying to entangle Jesus with his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, um, let's read this whole thing. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, they left him, and they went away. We're going to see three groups in this section. We're going to see Pharisees, we're going to see Herodians, and we're going to see Sadducees. And one of the things that really stands out to me as I think about that is I think about how little has changed 
It's one of the things I love about the Old Testament. It's one of the things I love about the Bible is Satan has the same plans. He uses them over and over. And when we read Scripture and we get a sense of who God is and who Satan is and what Satan is doing, it becomes actually pretty easy to, to look around and go, okay, how is Satan working in relationships and culture and the church, and how do we avoid that? So the, the Pharisees were uh, religious conservatives. They studied the Bible. They taught the Bible, but they taught the Bible without Christ. They didn't, it wasn't a genuine worship of God. It was intellectual. We have that kind of thing all over the place. There are all kinds of religious institutions. There are all kinds of, um, you know, people that have PhDs, and they, they, they're on the History Channel, and they're talking about religious things, and, and people view them as religious experts. But the truth is, they know nothing about God. And that was the Pharisees, completely divorced from a relationship with God, but very conservative. The Sadducees were liberal. They were liberal. They didn't believe any of the miracles in the Bible. And uh, so they just discounted all those things. We're going to see that. They were wealthy and they were powerful. And it's interesting because the Sadducees didn't like the Pharisees. But there was something that unified them. And that is that they hated Jesus. So that would bring them together. And then there's the Herodians, which we see the Herodians in this passage. And the Herodians were, uh, their name is Herodian. So it's like what? Herod? Remember Herod who killed John the Baptist? So they were uh, dominated by politics. Um, do you know or see, like, let's just think about that. Do we have religious conservatives who don't actually know Christ? Do we have religious liberals who don't know Christ? And are there groups of people who have conflated church and politics, and they're actually not about a relationship with Christ, they're about their political views? So the same things going on in Jesus' day are going on today. And so these, these people, they come and they're trying to trap him, and their goal is to ask a question that, they, that he cannot answer. So no matter how he answers this, he loses. So they're going to ask him, is it lawful. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? And um, here, here's the catch-22 of that question. If he says yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, all the Jews hate him. They're going to hate him because Caesar actually said he was God and that he was to be worshipped. And, and so there was, like, it was beyond just paying taxes. They were so opposed to this because they felt like, oh, man, Caesar's saying we should worship him. We don't worship him. We worship God. There were all kinds of reasons in their mind that they should not pay taxes. And so if he says, yes, pay taxes, um, the Jews are going to, man, they're, they're going to hate him and he's going to lose his crowds. Now, on the other hand, if he says don't pay taxes, oh man, now he is in trouble with the Romans. These Herodians are going to run off and tell the Romans, he's saying don't pay taxes, and they're going to come in, hey, Romans don't put up with people saying don't pay us our taxes. And so they feel like they have him in a catch-22. Now, I was thinking about uh, taxes uh, just in general, and I love it when, when people are young and they get jobs and they start paying taxes. Um, there's somebody in my life who, when they started paying taxes, they immediately went out and bought a shirt that says, Tax is th taxation is theft. And, um, 
And, and I, was, uh, I found this meme, I'll just share it with you, about paying taxes. It just says, my daughter asked me what taxes are like. Um, and so she could understand, I went into the kitchen and ate 45% of her cookies, 46% of her cookies. And you can see that daughter is crying. That's, that's how a lot of young people are when they start paying taxes. Now, here's, here's the thing that we see that Jesus is going to actually address this issue And I don't want to focus on it, but I'm going to give you the answer that Jesus gives. Jesus actually says pay taxes. He he pulls out a coin, and he grabs a denarius. Now, last time I showed you guys a picture of a denarius, um, I actually showed you the picture of a wrong one. And somebody in the church goes, actually, the legs are a little bit different on the one that circulated in Jesus' day. So there's a guy in our church who actually has this coin And this is the right one. He took a picture of it and sent it to me. So this is the right type of coin that Jesus would have grabbed a hold of. And this is one of the things I just think is incredible is that it's possible that that coin that uh, it's actually Tom Canavino has could have been the the coin that Jesus was holding. I should have brought it and passed it around today. But... (laughs) But this is what Jesus says, and he says something that's actually very important here. He says, show me the coin for the tax, and they brought him a denarius, verse 20, and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? You know, that's actually a pretty important thing. Now, you're a Jewish person. You are steeped in the Old Testament. Jesus is about to say something. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you are going to miss what he's saying. So I just want to ask you, do you know what it is? When he says whose likeness and inscription is on this, what is going to start popping into the minds of these people who study Scripture? Let me ask you a question. What starts popping into your mind right now? And then he's going to say, give to Caesar... Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So he's saying, okay, God's image and inscription, or Caesar's image and inscription is on this coin. So what's he saying? That's Caesar's coin. He minted it. So give back to him what is his. So just for Christians, one of the things that the Bible tells us is that we're good citizens. We honor authority. We honor the king. We, we don't break laws. Like if you want to come up with an excuse to, to not pay taxes, we can think of all kinds of things wrong with our government, all kinds of things that the government does that they shouldn't do. And we can rationalize, I'm not going to give them my money. And, um, but, but one of the things that God tells us is that as citizens of our country, we do pay taxes. And it, we're kind of blessed. You know, in Caesar's day, if they didn't like how the taxes were being done, do you know what kind of input they had? <laughs> None. In our country, if you don't like the taxes, you got to pay them, but you could try to do something to change how, how our tax system works. We actually are able to participate. They weren't. So as believers living in the United States, we pay our taxes. But Jesus is going to say something really important, and it's, it's Jesus' point right here. Because then he says, Therefore, render to C- Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, it goes on and it says, when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. 
But I want to ask you a question. When Jesus says, render to God the things that are God's, when Jesus says that, what is he saying? What is it that we're supposed to render to God? So how do you know what belongs to Caesar? Well, it has his image on it. So let me ask you a question, because I've heard all kinds of things about this passage. Like, uh, you know, yeah, sure, pay taxes, but don't forget to give your offering. Um, I've heard all kinds of things come out of this passage. You want to know what Jesus is saying? Let me just ask you, how do we know what is God's? Now, I would just say this. It has God's image on it. What is that? What bears God's image? And I just want you to know, it's people. You guys know. I mean, you're all saying it out there. We, we got people in this church who read the Bible. You are made in God's image. You want to know who's made in God's image? Every single person is made in God's image. If you're a Christian, you are made in God's image. You are to give yourself to God. If you are not a Christian, you are made in God's image. You are to give yourself to God. There, there are so many people that as they go through life, they go, oh, man, we can't expect unbelievers to live like believers. No, of course we don't. But I want to ask you a question. Are unbelievers obligated to, to live as believers? And the answer to that question is yes. Everybody is equally owned by God and equally accountable to God. It doesn't matter what you intellectually decide you want to do. You have an obligation to follow and obey God. That is for everybody on earth. And so is there a financial element of being a Christian? Yes. But what Jesus is saying here is far more than financial. It is a total personal commitment to Christ. And so Jesus takes their little trick of trying to trip him up about taxes, and he just says, hey, what's the problem with the Pharisees? They didn't give themselves to God. Life was about them, not God. And so Jesus just says, okay, foundationally, every person anywhere on earth needs to give themselves to God. That's the spiritual truth that you need to understand. Let's look at this next section Let's look at verse 23. Here we're going to meet the Sadducees. And here's our point. That we need to know God's word. And we need to know God's power. That's, that's, what, that's the point Jesus is going to make here. And there's a bunch of other side things we can learn. We'll, we'll look at those briefly. But we really want to consider Jesus' point. It says in verse 22, or chapter, verse 23 of chapter 22. The same day the Sadducees came to him and they said, uh, the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. That's an important part. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us, and the first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. And so to the second and third, down to the seventh. After all of them, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So they're going to pose this question to Jesus. 
In the Old Testament, um, if, if, if a man got married and died, it was his brother's obligation to marry the wife, and the first child would be the legal heir of the brother. And um, it's so his name would carry on, that his inheritance would carry on, so that there would be a child and so that he would have offspring. And so that, that's a, a whole section in the Old Testament. We could think through why God did that, but this is the point. The, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection, and yet they're going to show up and ask Jesus this question that they think, man, he's not going to be able to answer this. Like, what's he going to say? She's going to be married to all seven? I mean, people would go, ah. Oh. You know, it's like, you know, what's going to happen? So they're, they're trying to come up with this question he's not going to be able to answer. And Jesus actually does answer their question, but he starts by actually addressing their spiritual problems. They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't know scripture. They don't trust the power of God. And so he is going to answer their question, but he's actually going to address the problem in their heart. Look what he says in verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. About what? That there's no resurrection. You are wrong. Why? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So here's something really awesome for us to think about. Marriage is for this life. This is the only time you have to be married. Jesus actually answers that question. Who is she going to be married to? None of them. There is no marriage in heaven. You know, marriage is a priority. It's an incredible gift. It's not the only thing that makes life valuable. There are people who feel like, oh, man, if I'm single, if I'm not married, then I'm missing out on life. Um, God's intention is to bless many people who are single. But marriage is a good thing. And marriage is for this life. And marriage is a gift in this life. And it's something that's very significant and important. But Jesus says it's for this life. There is no marriage in heaven. People will be like the angels. You know, um, it doesn't say people are angels. See, angels don't get married. In one moment, God created every angel. There are no new angels. No angels die. God created all the angels. When Satan convinced them to rebel against God, a third of them became demons. But there's just one number of angels. There's no marriage. Angels don't marry. And so that's one of the things Jesus tells us that. Now, here's an important thing for us to understand about all spiritual things. You can hear all kinds of things about spiritual things and about heaven and eternity. And there are so many people that just make things up. Did you know that the only things we know are what God tells us? He is the only one who knows. There are so many people who live their life based on things that people made up. I remember... um, uh, close to my house before I moved down here, that there was this car accident. These four teenagers got in a car, driving super fast down the road, got in an accident, and three of them died. And when I went there, it was so sad because I'm looking at this place and I'm reading all the things that these students have written on, on the, the median and just the different places where this person has died. And they're saying things like, I know you're in heaven looking down on us. I know now you've gotten your wings. And there's all these things that people say that are not true. And Jesus, in this issue, he answers this question. There is no marriage. People are like angels. And there's no marriage for angels. 
And then he, he says, this is the reason that you're wrong. And he identifies their key issue. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And then if you look at verse 31, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? When you think about this, as Jesus goes through his interactions with the Pharisees, he constantly answers their questions with, have you not read? He never says, oh, there's no way you could know this. Sure, the Bible's confusing. Everybody has their own interpretation. He never says any of that. He always blames them when they're wrong because they don't know what God says and because they don't know God's power. And those two things go together. And then here he's going to quote an incredibly popular passage. Everybody knows this passage. And uh, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to ask you where it's from. And you might not know the answer, but I'm going to help you with that. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Okay, do you know where that was spoken in the Old Testament? Okay, good. Okay, yes, the burning bush. That's a pretty popular story, right? When Moses is wandering and he goes to the burning bush and God talks to him and he brings Israel out of um, Egypt, when that happens, like that is when Jesus says this. Every Jew, everybody who studies Scripture knows this passage. And so actually, the resurrection is referred to all over the Old Testament. There, um, in fact, if you think about the oldest um, book in the Old Testament, it's Job, right? And Job talks about how um, that after he dies, he will see Jesus from his own eyes. He will see his Redeemer with his own eyes. So even Job, the oldest book in the Old Testament, talks about the fact that there will be a physical resurrection multiple places in the Old Testament. It says that there will be a resurrection to eternal life and a resurrection to punishment. It says that in the Old Testament. But Jesus just picks this prominent passage to say, no, God is the God of the living. By the way, <laughs> those the people mentioned there, they were all dead when that verse was written. And it doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. It says, I am the God of Abraham. And so he just expects, no, there is a resurrection, and you don't understand God's power, and you don't understand Scripture. Those are two separate things, but they kind of relate together. How do you know about God's power? It's communicated in Scripture. You know, there are some themes in all four of these sections, and I'm not going to point them all out. But here's one. When you think about the impact of God's power and what we learn about God's power and how that speaks to the life that you and I live. You now, think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how when, um, when Nebuchadnezzar said, he looks at them with fury and he says, you worship my idol or I am going to throw you into a furnace. And they just said, no, actually. And he says, your God can't save you. And they say, no, God can save me. You know when it says there about Jesus, you don't care about what people think, you just say what's true? 
You know, that's living in light of the power of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, all these people in the Old Testament, they lived in light of the power of God. Do you know how people and Christians live today? They're so afraid of everything. They, they don't speak up. They, they don't share the gospel. They don't speak the truth. They don't accurately reflect what God thinks. Every, like Christians, as they function, as they go around, they're so afraid to get canceled. Man, if I say this, that's, that's not popular in culture. Oh, my goodness, if I say that, I'll be rejected. My neighbors won't like me. I might lose my job. And people go through life editing themselves, being quiet, um, just being silenced. Kids go to school, and they'll be in a science class, or they'll be in some kind of a class, and, and all kinds of anti-God things are being shared, and everybody shares their own opinion, and the Christian kids sit there quiet. Why? They're so afraid of the people around them. They think that their future is in the hands of people. Instead of saying, no, God is so powerful, my, hand, my, my life is in God's hands. You know, Jesus says that. He says, don't fear those who kill the body, but rather feel the, fear the one who can kill your body and soul in hell. Who should we fear? God, not people. And so we just see that, that whole theme. And when you think about the fact that the resurrection, the power of life is the most powerful thing that there is. If God controls your eternal destiny, if God has the power of life over death, if Jesus can raise somebody from the dead, like what is more powerful than that? And so they don't know God's power and they don't know Scripture. And by the way, you can only know God's power through Scripture. And, and that's kind of like the, the liberal Sadducees and it's like many Christians today. Have you ever met a person who they read the opening chapters of Genesis and they just go, yeah, that's not how that happened. Or they read the story of Jonah, and they go, yeah, that's, that's just kind of a, a fun story, but that didn't actually happen. Or, or they read about the crossing of the Red Sea or the plagues in Egypt or any of the things in the Old Testament, and every time they run across a miracle, they just go, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't really happen. You know, I heard somebody talking about the crossing of the Red Sea, and they're just going, yeah, I mean, it sounds like this great thing, but actually the Red Sea was just this really tiny little stream, and it was no big deal to walk across it. And the person that they were talking to just goes, wow, that's, that's kind of amazing. What, are, what an incredible miracle. I can't believe that. I'm like, what are you talking about? How's that a miracle? It's like, well, if it was this little tiny stream that they walked through, what a miracle that God drowned the entire Egyptian army in this little tiny stream. Wow, that's a bigger miracle than I thought. And yet how many people are so impressed with their own intellect as they just dismiss the things that God has clearly stated in Scripture? See, we're people that we need to understand Scriptures and we need to understand the power of God. So the first is a complete commitment to Christ. You're made in God's image. You give yourself to him. The second thing is we have total faith in God's power and in God's word. And here the third thing that we're going to see in this passage is that God wants your heart. God wants your heart. 
It's not just about intellectually understanding God or studying things from an intellectual perspective, but God wants your heart, your affections, everything about your life, commitment, faith, and your heart. We are to love God, and therefore we love others. This is a powerful thing to, to see here. So Matthew twenty two thirty four. but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest commandment. Now, last week we talked about love, and just in case you weren't here, one of the points that we made last week is that love doesn't discount Scripture. There are so many people who just go, oh, and, you know, I want to make another point first. Um, by the way, these two verses that are cited, these quotations are from the Old Testament. You know, love God and love your neighbor is in the Old Testament. There's so many people, oh, yeah, in the Old Testament, God was a God of anger and wrath, and he just judged and killed people. But now in the New Testament, everything's different. God loves people. No, um, the same God in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we, we, uh, we, we were accepted by God because we obeyed all these rules and did all these sacrifices. That's what saved you in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, you're saved by faith. You know, there is so much that is the same between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's a lot of things that are different. We do need to understand how those things fit together. But the example of faith that is used in the New Testament is Abraham. He lived in the Old Testament. And what God wants of you, that you love him and that you love others, is actually something he said in the Old Testament. Um, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it's called the Shema. And Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear. And it starts in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and it just says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And this is, so, so that's the commitment that Old Testament believers were supposed to have. God, you are one, and God, I love you. And, and this is something incredibly powerful because what it says next in Deuteronomy in verse 6, it says, And the, these words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. It's supposed to motivate you. It's supposed to drive you. It's supposed to be the thing that inspires everything you do is your love for God. And then he says something else. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. See, loving God is supposed to be the priority in your life, and you're supposed to understand how that's the priority. And, you know, for us growing up, we, we cared about our kids. We cared about education. You know, um, my kids, man, when they were little, they did their homework. And we did everything we could do to help them do well in school. 
You know, we taught them their alphabet. We taught them to tie their shoes. We taught them to write their name before they went to kindergarten. And it's because we wanted them to walk in. We wanted them to get the most out of their education. We've encouraged and helped our kids go to college. All those things, education and those kinds of things are important. I want my kids to be able to work hard and get a job. Like one of the things I used to tell my kids growing up is you are going to have a huge advantage over everybody you go to work with. And the reason for that is today everybody has this attitude of entitlement. They walk in, it's like, okay, what are the benefits? Um, how much are you going to pay me? How many breaks do I get? You know, I, I deserve this and I deserve that. And, and they don't think about the fact that you know, your ploy, employer doesn't exist to uh, give you as much as possible. You're hired to show up and work from the day you get there and from the moment you get there until the moment you leave. Like we taught our, taught our kids to work hard. So there's all these things about their life that we wanted to invest in them and encourage them and we wanted to see them have. But you want to know what the most important thing to us was? It was not their education. Uh, there were times that uh, my kids would come home and they'd say, yeah, I can't go to youth group. I have this major test. And I would just say, yeah, I don't care. You're going to church. And, and as I'm not saying that they never skip, but the most thing is we just said this, church, learning about God, having other people invest in your life is more important than anything else you do. They would go get jobs, and I would tell them, when you go get a job, um, make sure you tell your employer you don't work on Sunday. Because I'll just tell you this, your employer schedules you on Sunday, you won't be showing up. So keep yourself from getting fired. You'll be fired your first week. You better communicate to them, church is more important to you than your job. And I told them, that's not just now for when you're in high school. That's going to be for the rest of your life. You need to learn to do this now, but one day if you get a job and you need your employment and that's going to pull you out of what God has called you to do in life, you don't do that because God comes first. And by the way, the, the reason you need to be educated and the reason that you need to work hard is because everything that you do reflects on God. You shouldn't show up to school and say, I'm a Christian and be the most incompetent person in your class. You should show up. You should be respected. You should do well, not for you, but because you reflect Christ in your life. You know, we're to love God with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that's actually the thing we're supposed to be teaching our kids because that's what they need to know. And then it goes on, and Jesus says, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know why that is the second commandment? It's because if you love God, you will love people. Remember 1 John 4.20? I referred to this last week, too, when I was sharing a story about how John said he hated Jackson. You're never going to live that down, John. But actually, this is the verse that I read him. And it just says this, if anyone says I love God and he hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Do you know why we love people as ourselves? Well, <laughs> why do we love people? And I just want to ask you a question. Who, who is made in God's image? It's other people. Somebody came into my office this week, and they, there's a picture of my dad 
um, standing by an airplane, you know, that, that he flew in when he was in the Army. So he's like, hey, who's, a, who's that a picture of? I'm like, oh, that's my dad. Now, if you went in there and I just grabbed that picture and I just, like, threw it on the ground and stepped on it, or if I grabbed scissors out of my desk and I just started stabbing that picture, what would you understand about me and how I felt about my dad? You'd say, man, you probably really hate your dad. See, that's the thing is that if you love God, you're going to love people. Because people are made in God's image. Did you know that that is why there is the death penalty for murder? In Genesis 9-6 says, if you shed a man's blood, your blood should be shed. Why? Because people are made in God's image. And when you attack God, there is no greater penalty for that. We don't kill people made in God's image. So um, I was at this conference one time with a bunch of attorneys and people who were, you know, fighting for to abolish the death penalty. And they're just like, you don't teach that killing is wrong by killing. You know, they're, they're saying things like that. And I just said, actually, killing is so wrong that the only appropriate response to it is the death penalty. Now, that's actually not a political statement. That's something that God says, but I, I just want you to know this. In our culture and society, we do need to think about justice and whether or not we should trust our government to exercise the death penalty. And, and is that done fairly and is it done rightly? And so I'm not saying that this is not a more complex issue, but fundamentally, um, the reason that there is the death penalty is because killing a person is attacking God. And so there's more to it than that. I'm not actually communicating my perspective, although um, I have one. But I will just say this. We love people because people are made in God's image. And then he adds this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that's actually something about, you know, everybody says I love God and everybody says I love my neighbor. How do you know if you love God? How do you know if you love your neighbor? See, that's where all the commandments in Scripture come to bear. You're supposed to love God. That's all you need to know. But how do you know if you're loving God? You ever know people who, who say, oh, man, I love you, but then everything in their life communicates they don't love that person? See, if you read through Scripture and you're like, have no other gods before me, but you just go, yeah, actually, um, I honor and worship other things other than God. And you say you love God. No, you don't. Um, oh, I read this verse, and, and right here, God tells me I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Jesus says, you love me, you'll obey me. So you just read through Scripture, and if you find things in Scripture that you're disregarding, it means you don't love God. It's a measure. It's a test. And you could say, yeah, love your neighbor. Yeah, sure, I love my neighbor. Really? Do you love your neighbor like yourself? Um, if you see somebody hungry, do you feed him? Well, no, no, I don't, I don't do that. Well, do you feed yourself when you're hungry? Like, how do you treat yourself? You know, what's interesting in the Old Testament, all the passages where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, they're actually all related to bitterness and being angry and being mad at somebody for hurting you. It's all about not taking revenge. And in a sense, you know, you just, would you like to be forgiven? 
Do you want everything you've ever done to be held against you? Then don't hold that against other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a measure to, to make sure that we don't just say things, but we can tell whether or not we're doing them. And so love your neighbor as yourself. On those depend all the law and the prophets. And here we're going to hit the the final point. This is significant. And this is the question that Jesus asks. See, they're trying to trip him up. And (laughs) just, I just want to let you know, that doesn't work. Like being against God, opposing God is destructive for you. You know, we think, oh man, I can't stand with God because the world is too powerful and everybody's against me and I'll be hurt. No, they're not the ones who hold power. Jesus holds power. You, you want to be on the side that wins? Be on Jesus' side. And yes, that's in the future, but that's today. And so now Jesus is going to actually show them, you don't trip me up, but I trip you up anytime I want. And so then this is what Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two forty-one. And not only does he trip them up, but he gets their attention and he asks them a question which really is, who am I? And this is important, Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? That's the Messiah. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah, right? The Christ. That's a point he's been making in his whole ministry. And so he just says to them, Who do you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they're like, oh man, this is an easy question. Whose son is the Messiah? We know the answer to that one. Uh, the son of David. See, all in the Old Testament is promised that the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Well, what happened in Matthew and Luke in the, in the genealogies? It traces gene- Jesus' lineage, Matthew through Joseph, Luke through, through Mary. And it just says, what's his genealogy? He's the son of David. Why is that important? If he's not the son of David, he's not the Messiah. So this is like a really important question. And they get it right. The son of David. But then look what happens next. Verse 43, and then he said to them, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. And uh, there are so many things happening here. I'm just going to briefly point them out. So he's the son of David. How is it that David in the spirit? See, this is a common theme. When he says David in the spirit, what's he saying? He's saying God wrote the Old Testament. When David wrote this, he wrote it in the Spirit. It is authoritative. God said it. What does the New Testament say about inspiration, right? No prophecy of Scripture came about by an act of human will, but holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Why do we believe everything in the Bible? People are fallible. They make mistakes. They remember things incorrectly. They don't actually know everything. Why do we believe it all? Because God wrote it. And so, like, you don't understand the scriptures, like, all through this. And here again, Jesus makes the point, 
God wrote this. When David says this, it wasn't just David. It was the Spirit was moving him to write. And he calls him Lord. Now, let me just ask you a question. How do you say Lord to somebody that's your son, let alone about somebody who's not here yet? See, this is actually, for those of us who understand who Jesus is, this is an easy question to answer. But they've been going through their whole life rejecting who Jesus was. What did Isaiah say about Jesus? We quote this verse at Christmas all the time. That he's what? Emmanuel. Which translated means God with us. What do we know about Jesus? What do we know about the Messiah? By the way, from the Old Testament and the New Testament, he is God. How does he call him Lord? Because he's his master. He's his creator. He is God himself. Colossians 2.9 says that in Jesus all the fullness of deity dwelt. Jesus is God. That's why he calls him Lord. And then how is it that he's his son? Well, how is it that he's his son? Well, we know that. It's because God took on flesh. Philippians 2 describes that. Colossians 2, 9 says, In him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. Jesus was born. He eternally existed but took on flesh at his birth. And that's why he's his son and his Lord. And so Jesus ends all of this. By saying, what do you say about me? Remember when, when Jesus said that um, to his disciples? Who do people say I am? All oh, this and this and this. And he says, who do you say I am? And that's how Jesus ends this. And this is actually important for you and I. Who is Jesus? And uh, I would just say this. It's so incredible that our Christian life isn't based on how committed we are. Yes, believers are totally committed. Our Christian life doesn't have as its foundation how much do we know about Scripture and how much do we know about the power of God. Yes, that is essential. But that's not our foundation if we don't know enough that somehow we're shaken. Or, you know, just all these things in this passage. But here's the thing our life is built on is the person and the work of Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We're not trying to be good enough. Jesus was good enough for us. And all of these things are true. We're committed. We trust God's word, and we trust God's power. God is our greatest affection. That is related to other people and communicated to people because they're made in God's image. But our life is built on the person of Jesus. And that, that's awesome. There's no pressure. When we blow it, we run back in repentance because God always forgives us because of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these powerful lessons. Lord, you said that you are a rock and that anybody who falls on you will be broken and that, Lord, when you fall on people, you crush them. Lord, our standing before you is so critical. We need to understand your power. And, Lord, the, we need to never think that our future is in the hand of anybody other than you. And yet, Lord, you are so merciful our life is built on your work. We're not trying to get, be good enough. 
Our future is not hanging in the balance based on our abilities or level of commitment. But, Lord, you, you love us. You forgave us. We get the credit for your righteousness. God, help us to live faithfully and to live in light of these things. In your name, amen.